I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thank you, Ken. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. And I think last week we reached the point where the property had been identified, analysed, the deal had been negotiated and the due diligence completed. What would you like me to cover next? A couple of weeks ago, you promised our listeners you'd tell them how to gain the upper hand with the banks. Perhaps you'd like to explain this in some detail? Okay. You know, you can choose a top property and negotiate a great deal and then watch the whole thing unravel if you don't pay close attention to how your finance is put together. Now, you remember back in step four, we talked about pre-valuing the property and the reason for that was so that we could establish a figure up to which a valuer would support. And therefore, if a recognised valuer would support it, that's the figure against which the bank will lend. So that was to give you comfort so you could sleep at night. But if we go forward into this step now of arranging your finance, what we're talking about is that you would have, at the point of entering into the contract, have already spoken with a finance broker and he would have given you a ballpark figure of what was involved, indicative approval of several lenders that would lend based on the price of the property, what it was, the income, and also your financial standing. So the idea is that you go in, as I said, no, you're not paying too much, and that indicatively you have approval for the funding based on the price you're going to pay. Now, Traditionally, the way it works is that you exchange contracts, you then take the contract to your bank, the bank then organises a valuation and hopefully you proceed through to settlement and everything's fine. But what we were finding, and this goes back to the early 90s when I, I started acting for purchases, was that invariably three or four weeks before settlement, the lending officers would come back to my client and say that the credit committee was a little bit nervous. As you remember, the things were a little bit tough in the early 90s as they are in fact now, and would say that they're a little bit nervous and would like to have a lean over your home or your business and just need that little bit of extra security. Now, three or four weeks out from settlement, you are really caught in a bind. There's nothing you can do. And generally, you have to reluctantly agree to it. Now, when that happens once, you sort it out. When it happens again, you find a solution. And so what I did was I spoke with the valuer and the reason we have the arrangement back in step four where he will provide the figure in advance to give you comfort before entering into a contract is because I gave him an undertaking that when my client's have actually purchased the property, they will instruct him themselves to go and carry out the valuation based on the contract price paid because the contract price is going to be no higher than what he was prepared to, to support, but ideally lower than that figure. So that's the figure he'll be prepared to value it at. So he prepares his valuation and provides us with a soft copy which we give to the finance broker And even if you have your favourite source of finance, it is the broker that circulates a soft copy 
to your source and a couple of other sources that he feels will actually produce a better result. Because the unspoken implication in doing that is, well, don't muck us around as far as the commercial terms of the lease are concerned, because we've obviously sent it out to more than one party. Your finance broker has the opportunity to create this mini auction, as it were, amongst the the financiers that we're seeking to get proposals from. And it's not until you're happy with both the commercial terms of the deal that they're offering you, but also legal terms of the contract itself, so that you don't have any surprises. But if, for whatever reason, someone a couple of weeks out did suddenly pull a Swifty, well, we can say to them, look, that's fine, if you want to do that, we'll go and get our second best choice because you own the valuation. You hold the trump card there. And that, that's the difference. That The way I put the deals together is the, the valuation is common to all the transactions. All I've done is change the ownership. And it's not until we're 100% satisfied with the deal that we ask the valuer to assign the valuation across to the financier. So it's important that you understand that because this is the way you actually control the deal as far as the banks are concerned. And most people, when they go to the banks for their finance, they go cap in hand and believe the banks are doing them a favour. It should be the other way around. You're the one that has the asset. You're the one that is bringing the business to the bank and therefore you're the one that should be in control. So hopefully that, that makes sense. I know when we were talking about investment objectives, you did say that the taxation benefit should not be the main reason for someone to purchase an investment property. But obviously those tax benefits can certainly improve your bottom line. Perhaps you could tell us a little about that in layman's terms? Yes, you're certainly right, Ken. The the tax benefits ought not be your prime motivation when it comes to purchasing a property. That's really the, the cream on the on the top. Uh, But equally, a lot of people do not fully understand depreciation and how beneficial it is. And also, people feel that if the building is slightly older, it doesn't have as much in it to depreciate. Now, what most people don't understand is that depreciation is of two components. One is the structure of the building. That's called a capital allowance or a Division 43 allowance. And there is also the accelerated depreciation for what's called plant and articles under Division 40. And that's things like carpets, light fittings, air conditioning and so forth. Now, unlike residential property, there's a lot more of those to depreciate, and your light fittings as well, um, a lot more of those to depreciate in a commercial building. Now, again, what most people don't understand is that you, ha- you take away the land from the transaction, the value of the land, and what's left of the purchase price is split between the value of the structure as at the time the property was built and the remainder by subtraction is attributed to the highly depreciable items of plant and equipment. So in actual fact, even though they might be 10 years old, they are effectively upvalued for the purpose of depreciation related to the price you pay for the property. As I said, that's a little-known fact, and you need a quantity surveyor who's qualified in this to come in and do the full assessment. 
So they take off the land, take the purchase price, subtract from that the structure, which they make an estimate of what it would have cost based on the size of the property, and by subtraction, what's left over is the current day value of the plant and articles. And it's those that you can then depreciate at varying amounts from data and communication things are around about 37%, carpets at 30%, early warning fire systems are at 15%, curtains and blinds and things like that are at 22.5%. There's a whole range of things that get accelerated depreciation. Now, you've got to understand this is a non-cash deduction for you, but it goes straight to the bottom line because it reduces your taxable income and therefore the tax you pay and therefore that improves your return. Now, your structural components, it'll depend on when the building was built, but it's generally about 2.5% per annum. So... It's a mix of the two and it's important that you understand how, how it works because it can really enhance the deal that you've done. An already good deal becomes a fantastic deal because of the depreciation benefits. Now, one of the things that you have to be wary of, and this is what I make sure, is the contract itself is silent as to the written down value of these plant and article items. Now, if the vendor is astute, they will have a schedule that their accountant has been claiming over the number of years and put it in the contract at the written down value. Now, from your point of view, if that's in there and you buy the property with that in the contract, you then have a problem because you can only depreciate from the point at which they have been written down to and you just continue that process. However, if you buy it and the contract is silent, you have the right to upvalue the items relative to the price paid for the property as a whole. Now, technically, the vendor should pay to the tax department what's called a balancing charge. In other words, they have already claimed a certain amount of depreciation. Because you have now upvalued these to a higher figure, they have to pay back to the tax department the differential between your new figure and their current written-down value. Now, because I'm acting for my clients, I'm not about to tell the vendor the exposure that they have. If I was acting for the vendor, my role would be to make sure that that was included in the contract. So you have to understand that you have this opportunity, but it's only if the contract is silent and there is no mention of a written-down value. And if that's the case... The quantity surveyor, after you've bought the property, and there's no rush to do it because you can backdate it to the date of the uh, contract when you when you purchase the property. And also, even if you miss a, a year in doing it, you can claim the depreciation that would have occurred in one year in the next if you haven't already claimed it in the previous year. So the advice with experts will clarify all that. That's not my role. All I find out is what are the rules and and then I try and explain to my clients how to play by them. Now, what's also interesting is that, you know, as a general rule under this Division 40 provision, the uh, plant and articles, it's interesting to see the different composition between the different types of property as to what proportion of the property's value these particular items can amount to. Now, if we start at the bottom of the 
of the list and look at industrial property, depending on the sophistication of the property, uh, how modern it is and therefore the type of technology it's got there, whether it's got halogen lighting or, or, or just the old fluorescent lighting, things like that, the proportion of these highly depreciable items will range from 10% to 40% or 45% for industrial property. Within a shopping centre, again, it depends whether it's a group of shops or, when I say that, say two or three strip shops or a small little shopping centre with five or six or more, a supermarket or whatever, then you could have anywhere from 30 to 60% of what you pay as depreciable under this Division 40. When you get to offices, depending on their size, and multiple stories that could range anywhere from 30 to 55% of the price you pay amounts to the total of what could be depreciated. Now, when you do look at an office fit-out, so you've bought an older office and you're going to renovate it and, and fit it out perhaps for the tenant, you can claim from 40 to 80% of what you spend on that fit-out, and that's sort of new carpets, partitioning, lighting, air conditioning or what have you, because you're in, installing it new and, and it's uh, reflective of the latest technology and so forth, 40 to 80% of it is depreciable. So you can see it's important to keep track of this and, again, it's using the right consultants to advise you. And if you're about to do a complete refurbishment and a new fit-out, you ought to also have an assessment of the value of the items that are currently there because they may not have been fully written off. If they haven't been fully written off, you have them assessed and when you remove them or demolish them to do the new fit-out, you can actually write the balance of that off in one go. So not only do you have the new items to depreciate afresh, but you can completely write off the other items which are uh, demolished and disposed of. So it's an area that contains... A lot of opportunities available provided you get the right advice. I realise it's not directly related to taxation benefits, but could you explain how investors can add value to their property after they've bought it? Yes, yeah, sure, Ken. Look, after settlement is when you start to implement what we refer to in the investment objectives as super growth and some of the management strategies. Now, when you buy a property, you, one of the reasons for buying it is that you need an angle. You need something that you can do to add value. And you, you don't wait until you've purchased and settled on the property before you identify that. The ideal uh, thing to do is to already have that plan in place. Now, if you're buying something smaller in the sort of three to six or $700,000 range, that may be a bit difficult other than looking at opportunities to enhance the rent maybe property might be slightly older there's some refurbishment that could be done if the tenant left maybe a change of use and something along those lines but if you've got something slightly bigger whether it is an existing strata floor in a building or a freestanding property where it might be a couple of stories is to create separate titles one at least for each floor but even on a strata floor most people don't understand that you can actually further subdivide a strata floor each strata floor has what's called a unit entitlement and unit liability under the strata plan 
provided the total of the individual new unit entitlements and unit liabilities don't exceed the figure for the original strata floor, then as of right, you can subdivide that further. Now, that obviously has to comply with building regulations and things like that. But if you've got a whole floor and you can, perhaps because the lift's in the centre, you're able to uh, divide it into one or two, uh, sorry, two or three separate tenancies, you can create separate titles. Now, obviously, if a property as a whole is worth a million, when you divide it into smaller parts, each part, when added up, will add up to 1.2, maybe 1.3 million. So by spending maybe 10, 15, 20,000 to get a strata plan, you could add a quarter of a million to the value of the property. Now, that doesn't even require you to necessarily create the dividing walls because the secret here is that what you're trying to do is to effectively buy the property wholesale but then divide it up so that it could be sold retail. Now, whether you do that or not doesn't matter because it will still add value because it means that at the point you come to sell, even if you sell it as a whole, the next purchaser knows that if they ever get short, they could sell off one or two or the whole lot, as the need may be, of the property in separate titles. So therefore, it obviously is more flexible and therefore carries a greater value. So whether it's land you're subdividing or existing buildings that you're further subdividing, it's a very simple, clever and inexpensive way for you to add value. Now, one of the other things is that you need to make sure that your property, and we're talking about adding value and, and, and maintenance, it fully complies. Now, during your due diligence, there should have been a check to see whether the essential services inspections had been carried out. You think of it initially as a, a, a job to be done to make sure it complies, but does it really add any value? Well, if the lease has been structured properly, the cost of your your essential services inspections, which are generally carried out on a six-monthly basis, there are some things that are done annually, but logbooks need to be kept on site by all the contractors for inspection by uh, anyone who is uh, seeking to verify that all the, the reports have been done and the inspections carried out. But yes, it is principally there for the safeguard of the occupants of the building, but it can also be used as a marketing point because a lot of properties I've found, the record keeping is pretty sloppy, but if you maintain them to a high standard, it means that someone coming in looks at them, they're all in order, they're all up to date, they're all neat and tidy, housed in a cabinet, and it just removes any doubt in their mind that the building is not well managed. And so undertaking those sort of routine things not only keeps your tenants safe, but the tenant is also happy. They see regular inspections going through the building and they know that you as a landlord are on top of things. Now, a good competent property manager will have this pretty well down pat, but you need to make sure that you have that right person looking after it for you. The other thing is that you ought to always be looking at how the property could be improved. One of the things I say to my clients is that within the first 12 months, you need to have your property, if it is not already like this, in ready-to-sell condition. 
Now, you're not about to sell it, I realise that, but you need to have it like that in case something occurs. Now, that involves the subdivision because a subdivision, while it's not expensive, by the time you get the plans done, you get the council approval, you get the title office approval, it could be six to nine months. So the time to do it is when you're not in a hurry. And that means that you start that very early on so that you have it in the filing cabinet, it's there, it's yours, and there's no rush, mad rush at the end. So it is the same with your maintenance work. Now, I like to have a preventative maintenance program prepared. So in other words, you call in an expert who will look forward for the next five years and make an assessment on the equipment, and things can be done now as maintenance items that would otherwise become capital items. Now, under your lease, the tenant would or should be required to pay for maintenance items, but the lease will specifically say that they are not required to pay for capital works. And therefore, the more things that you can have done on a on a week-by-week or month-by-month basis programmed into the system to extend the life of the air conditioning, to look after the lifts if, you, if they're in your building, making sure that the carpet is kept clean because while a tenant is responsible for those things, quite often they don't really want to organise it themselves. So that if you can set up these programs or have your managing agents set them up, not only is it meaning there's regular contact with the tenant, but it also means that your building is kept in tip-top shape because it's really important that you know if the circumstances change and you are forced to put the property on the market quickly, there is no impediment to you doing so. Having purchased and added value to the property over time, what I'd like you to do next week, Chris, is to clarify what people should do when the time comes for them to sell. Would that be okay with you? Yes, I can certainly cover that for you next week, Ken. And I think it's also worth reminding our listeners that if they are listening to these uh, recordings via iTunes, that they really ought to go back to the website because under a number of the podcasts that are located on the website are some download material. And what I'll do is I'll put together some information on the uh, accelerated rates for the Plantin articles and we'll make that available under this week's uh, episode, which people can get to by going to the propertybriefings.com website and the, the links will be under there. And also, while you are there, make sure you leave some specific questions so that we can start to address particular issues that are of concern to you. Anyway, I look forward to seeing you next week. <music>